0: Y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the
1: Woodpile. I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Today we're digging through the cushions to hear a few smaller segments that either weren't long enough for their own episode or extra stuff from other interviews. First up, Mr. Chuck Harriman takes us back to the first Gulf War in the early 90s and shares what it was like to be a mechanic in the middle of miles and miles of sand. So, what were you doing before this thing broke out?
0: Well, I was stationed in Germany. I was stationed over there in Vilsick, West Germany, which was a, a new post and I was there for two years. Before I came to the States, you know, I took a leave before, you know, I was going to, have to go to El Paso, you know, Fort Bliss. Even when I was in Germany, we knew that Tsunami Hussein had already been at the border and we knew something was getting ready to happen. And of course, the ones that had been there longer, they thought something bad might happen more than the ones that were there younger. Because whenever you're so used to not being in conflict, and we were so used to peacetime that uh, we never ever expected anything really to happen. Mm-hmm. And then when that happened, you know, we found out how our training really, you know, had took effect.
1: You know, Did you, know. you feel prepared?
0: I really did not know. I mean, <laughs> I, we always would, you know, uh, go through our regular training and stuff. But I was a mechanic, see, so I wasn't really a, a fighting soldier at that time. But I was a mechanic and I was very prepared as a mechanic. Of course, when I was over there, I had dreams of being like, you know, the Audie Murphy type of things, you know. Of course, I wasn't because I was a mechanic, so I didn't have to worry about it. But uh, I was very prepared as a mechanic. I loved my job and I was, you know, very good at it. I'll back up. Of course, when I finally uh, went from Germany to home and then spent a uh, a week or two there at home, Went to El Paso, and as soon as I got down there, they started uh, giving us all our gear and stuff because we were getting ready to go directly to Saudi Arabia. And we, of course, we all j- got on the plane, and they kind of gear you up to go over there because all you saw was these John Wayne cav movies, you know. Of course, that was you know way back when. Mm-hmm. And uh, but anyway, and so they were already gearing us up because they knew that this was going to be a conflict. So as soon as we got on the plane, got on this big old jet, you know, flew over there. When you was going to Saudi Arabia from El Paso. El Paso is kinda of like the desert, but it wasn't they uh, like the Gulf, the humidity was so bad that you when you first got there you had to walk around with two bottles of water everywhere you went or you dehydrate. Really. And as a matter of fact, if you didn't have two bottles of water, they would give you disciplinary action because you were not taking care of yourself. When we went out in the middle of the desert, it was a lot different than what you didn't have to worry about dehydration is bad it's kind of funny because we think of desert as being so hot and so terrible mm-hmm. but actually the desert was much better than the Gulf because it was dry dry heat and I mean hundred degrees in the desert is nothing compared to even 90 degrees in Kentucky even even but especially in the Gulf because it's extra hot there but <laughs> whenever we is in the the desert during the training portion of Getting prepared to do the uh, the invasion or whatever you want to call them, the kind of what we did was uh, the training was rougher than the actual war. Of course, it wasn't for the Iraqis, I'm sure, but we, (laughs) I mean, we were you know up. I was as a mechanic, I was up for three days straight without any sleep. I mean, as soon as I get through working on a vehicle, of course, these vehicles are all old and they really all needed to be turned in anyway. Uh, they'd go out and as soon as they'd break down they'd bring it back to me and as soon as they'll come back You know at first, you know, you kind of doing your job, you know, and you're, you're enjoying doing your job because that's your job You're over there anyway, you know, what are you gonna do? I mean, and I couldn't go out and get a date or anything, you know Anyway, so so I'm out there and I'm doing my job and finally, you know, after a period of time of working on all these vehicles You can get tired And every time I will start to lay down and rest then that would the recovery vehicle will come back with another tank you know and that's how you know these these vehicles you know out there in the desert that's why whenever we got the new vehicles to actually go into kuwait and do our job that uh the new vehicles man you didn't have to hardly do anything to them because they were so well taken care of brand new during the gulf war the actual war phase of it i had to go out and work on a, a tank that was broke down and it was just me and the tank crew of course All the air forces that, you know, the Iraqis had was depleted and they had all flew to Iran. So really wasn't that much to worry about in that area, but to be out there by yourself, you know, working on a tank and not really having any kind of uh, protection.
2: Just two hours ago, Allied air forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League, and a member of the United Nations was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined.
1: So give me a scenario, like a a tank breaks down, they call you, you got to go out there. Do you drive out there by yourself, or do you have an assistant or something?
0: Well, usually, like, let's say if you're in a recovery vehicle, you and your crew would drive over to where, you know, they tell you the grid coordinates or whatever, you get your map out, you go exactly where they're at, and you automatically start working on it. And the only real uh, protection you have, if it's out there in the middle of nowhere, would be either the tank crew or whoever else that you got with you, to full you know, security, and uh, you get the vehicle fixed as quickly as possible. And if you couldn't get it fixed as quickly as possible, you automatically would hook it up to the recovery vehicle and take it back. And that's where I was at. I was about five miles from the front, mm-hmm. and they would take it back to me if it was to be able to be taken back. And But the vehicle I'm talking about that was broke down out there, they dropped me off there, and everybody else went with the, everybody else. I mean, as far as a convoy and everything, they just dropped me off with the tank crew. And I fixed the tank. Of course, you, you're going to work as fast as you can because you don't want to be out there very long working on a tank without any protection. And I got the tank fixed, and they drove me to, from the area there to where everybody else was, and then they just dropped me off with everybody else. The worst thing that I seen when I was over there, okay, we were all in, a, in you know, kind of like the circle, like you see the wagons, you know. That's the way we did with our, what you call, motor pool, mm-hmm. with all the vehicles, with the mechanics, and all them what you call the... uh Rear echelon people, you know, as far as the people that are support, you know, that did all the, uh, you know, the work, you know, in the the motor pool type of setting. And we were all in that circle. They was destroying all the anti-aircraft weapons that they had, the Iraqis had over there, already set up and they were dug in. And you could hear shrapnel, you know, flying over us and stuff because we were actually too close to where they was blowing this stuff up. And then the motor sergeant and I had, he uh, decided he was gonna go over to the next truck where they was listening to it on the radio to see if there's any news about a peace treaty or whatever. And so while he was outside, you could hear they blew up one of those uh, anti-aircraft weapons and then you could hear the shrapnel flying over the, the truck. Of course, it could have been any of us. If it hit the truck, it would have, you know, you know hurt us. But anyway, that was the main thing I heard. Well, it was bad. Because the shrapnel went over, and he was out there in the middle of listening to the radio, and it, a piece of shrapnel hit him right over the heart. Oh, no. And, and uh, put a big place in his you know, blood, all over his hands, all over his uh, chest and everything. Of course, they rushed him to the Navy hospital they had there. He survived it, but uh, that was the most dangerous
2: time. Basically, what we re- started out against was a couple of hundred thousand Iraqis that were in the Kuwait Theater of Operation. I don't have to remind you all that we brought over initially defensive forces in the form of the 101st, the 82nd, the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division, the 3rd Armored Cavalry, and in essence, we had them arrayed to the south behind the Saudi uh, Task Force. Uh, Also, there were Arab forces over here in this area arrayed in, uh, in defensive positions, and that, in
1: essence, is the way we started. Did you have any interaction with the locals? Of
2: course, we would go back for
0: R&R, and we could, you know, either go watch a movie or, or whatever, you know, and we could go to the, the local, uh, they would have, like, vendors, and they were all Saudi Arabians, and, you know, you could buy things, and I bought this, uh, it's called Fido Dado, what was called, and it was a cartoon character, actually, and uh, I didn't know at the time, but, but it was a cartoon character, and on the front of the shirt, the cartoon character, because his hair's sticking straight up, kind of like mine. I just thought it was a cool shirt, and I got it from over there. And I bought a 7 Up can, and over there, the 7 Up cans are real metal. It's not this aluminum stuff I got here. And it was real heavy. And I kept that 7 uh, Up can. And Was it, it in Arabic? Oh, yeah, it was in Arabic. Yeah. And of course, it was made in Germany. I mean it was made in Germany and shipping down there. But, you know, all the people, you know, they, they all received us and everything else. Everything was all wonderful. I seen a feller that as we was going on the convoy that looked to me, I thought the guy looked like the pictures that I seen of some bin Laden mm-hmm. because he was just sitting there just watching everybody go by. I remembered that face. For whatever reason I remembered that face. And then of course when I seen the face and as a matter of fact it looked like the same picture that as I was driving by that he was standing there And I was like, man, that guy looks just like the guy I seen when I was driving. Over there, you know, we we think civil rights here and stuff like this, a lot of people complain about it, but uh, over there, some women, while we was over there, had decided that they were going to drive. And see, over there, women don't drive. It's against the law. And they had taken them to court and and told the women, said, if you promise us that you will not drive again because that was the influence we had on them. They, They felt like they kind of have a chance at liberation, Uh so they they decided that they were going to do that. Over there, if you promised the judge you wouldn't do it, then they let you go. But over there also, if you were a terrorist and you had done something that was terrorist activity, you were guilty to proven innocent. And over there, they took care of business, and you didn't have the crime over there. You didn't over here, per per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Germany was the same way. In Germany, you're guilty to prove an innocent. Really? So even if you were an American soldier and you got put in a jail, you weren't getting out until somebody could prove that you didn't do what you supposed to got done, caught. Dang. Yeah, they didn't mess around over there. you know, it was more of us hurting ourselves than the Iraqis hurting us because we were all told don't pick up anything because it could be booby trapped or it could be a mine or anything else. A guy as soon as they got over there, first thing he did was he picked something up and boom blew up in his hands. It killed that guy. If he had just listened, Mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't happen. But the only thing that I seen to me that was exciting as far as what you see in a war or any kind of pictures and stuff you see was every morning at five o'clock uh you could see the uh multiple uh rocket launchers shooting off you know in the mornings it was you know a beautiful sight but i was just glad it was going that way you know it was going (laughs) north instead of going south toward us (laughs) right and i was actually at a point that uh, people can say what they want to but i i would every time that i would see a missile would be taken off from Iraq. And I would look at my buddy and I'd say, there goes another Scud missile. And later on that day, you'd hear on the radio where a Scud missile hit somewhere. And that was exactly what it was. They would take them out there in, in the middle of the wilderness, you know, wherever they was at in Iraq. And I could see them over there from, from the other side of the border. You know, that was mainly my excitement. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I did have uh, some, some actual tragedy that happened at the end of the Gulf War, right as soon as it was over. I got a Red Cross message, and my captain, he come up to me. He said, uh, "He said, sergeant, he said uh, I got this message for you." And I read it. Of course, I didn't really recognize what it was, but my sister at the time was giving birth to a, a baby girl, and uh, and when she gave birth to the baby girl, she had gone to a certain hospital to uh, have her tubes tied. And whenever she went to have her tubes tied, the anesthesiologist was a inexperienced one, you know, one that was, you know, trying to learn. And well, he did it wrong and cut the oxygen straight off to her brain, and it automatically killed her. Oh no! And of course, they kept her on a machine, and uh, the baby's still finding me. Mean, she's now, uh, you know, what is it, uh, 23 years later, or 20? 20, no, 26 years later now, 27 almost. Anyway, so the girls, you know, her daughter's going on, you know, doing fine. But my sister had passed away, you know, because of a tragedy like that. It's kind of wild. You're over there, and and of course, everybody in the States, that's your family, is all worried and praying, you know, that God protect my son or God protect whatever. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, while I'm over there, and I felt pretty secure, you know. I had no concern for my life. I I, I just felt like everything was going to be all right. And then while I'm over there, as soon as it's done, I get a red cross message that my sister passed away. And of course, I'm in my desert uniform and everything else. And I just automatically get shipped, go to Riyadh and get on a plane and I go all the way to Germany. And I, you know, got to go to England. <laughs> and then I went from England uh, to the States. And the first thing I saw, and this was, this was the most gratifying part of what I'd done. The first thing I saw when I got back I got on the elevator, and this guy was there with me, and and he looked at me. He said, "Thank you," and I said, "For what?" He said, "For what you did," and I said, "I said I done my job," and then he said, "Yeah, but," he said, "I was in Vietnam War," mm-hmm. and he said, "When I come back, they spit on us. They done all these bad things. They said bad words to us," and he said, "You erased the memory that they have of us." Wow. And he said, "You you made things better." And I said, well, I said, I appreciate what you did. Mm -hmm. I said, because I feel like you did more than I ever did. I said, because you went through stuff in a bad time in America. And I said, to me, that's more important than what I did, but I'm glad I was able to do what I did.
1: Next, in my often mentioned hometown of Boonville, Indiana, there's a couple block radius where a high amount of afflictions seems a little out of the ordinary to just be happenstance my next guest will tell of not only her own sufferings but of why the neighborhood seems to be cursed okay so i'm here with my friend whom we will call for this recording garrison hi garrison hi and we are in boonville indiana and we are on ninth street between what roads and what roads
3: Taylor and Chestnut.
1: This is where you grew up? Yes. Yeah. You said there was a trailer behind the house that you lived in? Is that correct? Or, correct. Yeah, okay. But it's not there anymore? No. Okay. So, first of all, I'll talk about growing up in this little neighborhood.
3: Playing around in the street. We played everything in the street between hopscotch, riding our bikes, roller skates. You remember those wonderful mm-hmm. metal roller skates that you fall and bust your rear end on? Trying to freestyle on our bicycles. That didn't work very well. (laughs) Uh, I flipped over the handlebars of many a bicycle on this street.
1: And you said the part where we're parked at, you've wiped out several times?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I wrecked my brother's uh, chrome mongoose a few times, and I didn't have permission to borrow it. So, you know.
1: Okay, so you had told me earlier that since you were even an infant, you'd had some health problems. Correct.
3: Meningitis.
1: So you'd always maybe been a little sickly before. Okay. But... Uh, Somewhere along the way, things got a whole lot worse. Correct. Okay, and what age was that?
3: It's hard to say Mm -hmm. um, because I complained for years and years, even in grade school, of being dizzy. And I was always told it was something else, like perhaps an inner ear infection, Mm -hmm. even though it didn't show anything on a blood test or anything like that tired. I was the one kid that would rather sleep half the time than go play with my friends, which what kid does that? Just other weird things where I would just get sick and nobody else was getting sick and there was really no good explanation for it. Headaches, weird pains that I couldn't explain. And then there were times when I would actually go numb for no reason at all, but it was always explained away as something else. Nothing ever really came much of that until I got into my 20s and I started to push because most doctors just thought I had stress or I was crazy. Mm-hmm. They thought my mom was crazy and enabling me. So I was a hypochondriac and she was an enabler. Uh, eventually, I woke up one morning and this was after I was married. I was numb from the waist down. Well, I thought, okay, well, it's happened before. No big deal. It'll go away in a couple hours and everything will be fine, but it it didn't, it kept getting worse. And I remember I was terrified driving myself to work because I couldn't find the pedals on the car. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to look Mm -hmm. because I couldn't feel it with my foot. Mm -hmm. And when I got home that day, my husband was working night shift. And I told him, I said, I'm calling mom and I'm going to have her meet me. And I'm going to the hospital when I get off work tomorrow because I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Hands going numb, feet and legs going numb. And I'm being told all the time that it's nothing and it's just stress because I was in college and two jobs and that. kind. And sure, it could have been stress, but nobody else that I know that's working two jobs and going to college is going numb Mm -hmm. or falling upstairs and falling downstairs or just falling down for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. Something's not right. That night, she picked me up, and we went to the hospital. At first, there really wasn't anything. They did some exams and everything, and I think it was set up for the next morning to have an MRI, but then when they called the neurologist in, from the get-go, he thought I was full of crap. Things started happening where even he couldn't deny that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. My spinal fluid came back, and it was all screwy. They sent me to Indianapolis and through a couple of MRIs and other tests, they finally settled on it being multiple sclerosis.
1: So what's interesting about that, which, you know, it does happen. I guess what I understand of it, some people have the gene and sometimes it gets unlocked. Uh, yes,
3: yes, and I do have some people that I'm related to that right have it too. Sometimes,
1: but what's interesting about it is when we were driving to this neighborhood, you started pointing to houses and started... naming off what ailments everybody seemed to have. And they weren't just like your typical kind of thing. So for example, we're looking over here. I think you pointed to some of these houses. So
3: right. That house over there, lupus, the house behind you was a grandmother of somebody I grew up with. She died of cancer. That house down there, she died of cancer. There's another cancer case up, up the hill. Somewhere up there, there's another person with MS and or lupus. I can't remember which Mm -hmm. Down at the other end There are one two three four five six cases of multiple sclerosis At least one of lupus and a lot more of cancer just in this two blocks. That's just crazy
1: So talk about your neighborhood here and why it was special and different than most neighborhoods probably.
3: Where we're sitting is actually the parking lot of a factory that when I was growing up, it was an engineering facility. I didn't find out until later. I just always thought that they made or reused old steel or something. And I found out that they were actually refurbishing military cartridges Mm -hmm. from the time that I was in grade school and even then they'd been around forever. So
1: back in the 70s? Yes, in the
3: that. 70s and I still think they were doing it up until at least the 90s. A father started it mm-hmm. and then his two sons took over when he got too old to run the company.
1: What was the name of the company?
3: Murphy's Engineering.
1: And so what we're looking at now, where we're sitting, is all been torn down. Yes. So do you know exactly what they did here specifically? And, and I see across the street there's a garage, is that related to it? Yes. There's like, what, five, six doors in the garage? I don't know
3: they ended up... I don't know if that was just a storage facility oh. or a garage for the workers or what, but mm-hmm. originally this was just one little bitty small parking lot. They expanded to over here. Mm-hmm. At some point in what butted up against my backyard, because there's an alley that goes that way, mm-hmm. and they would transport stuff to and from the factory, mm-hmm. and they would deposit these big, huge... I guess, 55-plus-gallon barrels. I don't know what was in them, but, I mean, they sat there for years and years and years. I always remember as a kid, when they were going full blast during the day, even my brother had said something when we would walk home from school. He said, it was like walking through the worst fog you've ever seen. There'd just be this big, huge cloud hanging over the whole, the whole area. And I don't really remember that. I just remember, you know, running around and playing and all of this kind of stuff. I didn't really think about it i remember a lot of noise here and there and i remembered we'd have to be careful and wait until the dudes got off work or whatever before we played down here Uh but i mean coming home and stuff we used to walk through their parking lot and like i said we do donuts on bicycles in the parking lot wipe out and i think somewhere down there i dislocated my elbow and (laughs) just you know all kinds so now, all kinds of stuff.
1: So as far as you remember, Murphy was doing something for the federal government, like for the army? Or... Well, when
3: I was a kid, I didn't even know that. I okay. just, I didn't find that out until...
1: But that's what you were told.
3: Dude. That's what I was told. I don't know which branch mm-hmm. or anything of the service or whatever. I just knew military shells, cartridges, whatever you want to call it. That's okay. all I knew.
1: So eventually people started to get sick. Uh, and someone started to realize, like, this is odd, and started look into it, right?
3: I don't know if that's how it happened. At some point, somebody started wondering what was here, or I think it started when a private person bought property where one of the Murphys used to be, and I don't know if there was a problem with things that they would have to check out on the property to make sure it's safe for the purpose or whatever that the person wanted to and i don't know what it's called anymore Mm because i forgot something popped up and they were going to have to do some sort of special cleanup because they didn't know and i don't know if like i said there were barrels left or something but they didn't know what it was that they encountered that was going to have to be cleaned up somewhere the city of boonville got involved as well with this site Mm -hmm. because it was a blight, and they were worried about people either making a crack house, or one, it being an eyesore, or whether it would fall and damage other properties, or what. So they decided they were going to have to get in here and destroy it, or whatever. They ran into a problem of trying to figure out who was responsible by... They said they couldn't figure out who owned the property, but something was going to have to be cleaned up. The next thing you know, it's in the paper that they're going to be bringing in some sort of a hazmat team to end up cleaning it up because on preliminary review, there were toxic substances here. And literally, I was still living here, but I didn't hear that they were coming until later. Have you ever seen E.T.? No. (laughs) Oh, there's this spot in (laughs) E.T. Where they basically quarantined like the whole street where Elliot lives. And I mean, people are head to toe in hazmat Uh suits. And when I turned the corner down there at Taylor, it was like a scene out of an alien movie or something. There's just stuff covered everywhere. And there are people walking around in suits. And I ended up stopping at my grandparents' house because they lived in front of me. And I said, do you know what's going on? And they, Yeah. They're out there cleaning up that mess down there. Do you believe that? We're living here, breathing this. These people are covered head to toe in hazmat suits, but they're fine to leave everybody else living here. Like, so they it's didn't nothing. Ev-
1: they didn't evacuate or anything?
3: No. Wow. No. we And, you know, then we had to end up reading in the paper what the heck it was that they found. And, I mean, there were traces of... I think they said cyanide. And... Things like hydrochloric acid, um, chromium, but which type, I don't know. There are certain types that are completely toxic and other types, not so much. And just things like that. And and then there's a guy that lives down the street there that used to work here. And he said, huh, they never told us what was in that stuff. We were breathing it in. And he said, in fact, we used to dump it over the fence into people's yards because they didn't give us a facility or protocol on getting rid of those chemicals
1: it's okay let's let's be specific about this so when you the person who just said that was that somebody who worked for murphy's yes and when they said they didn't tell us who was they the management or anybody anybody okay
3: that doesn't mean that management didn't necessarily know this specific person was never told by and he wor- Anybody that he worked with above or below. Okay. He said, I, I never knew what was in it. We were just literally, me and, you know, crew right. members were just told, just chuck it over. It's not just dump it mm-hmm. in the yard. It won't hurt anything kind of mm-hmm. attitude.
1: So it's possible that even maybe Murphy's themselves didn't, I mean, they obviously knew what they had, but they didn't maybe realize the danger of it or.
3: Who knows? Okay, Okay. But if I hear cyanide, I know it's not good for me. Yeah, because I
1: don't, I don't want to try to indict anybody. <laughs> no, who... no,
3: I, I don't know who knew what. I know what was found.
1: Okay, gotcha. That's good. We'll stick with yeah. the facts. Okay. Yeah. So they're pretty open about cleaning it up, obviously, because it was in the paper and there are obviously the guys are in their spacesuits out here. And then I guess it it was cleaned up, right?
3: As far as I know. Right.
1: Okay. So obviously people started to, like you said, like, hey, we've been out here breathing it for years. Right. And then again, with people getting sick, was there any kind of attempt to find out what the health hazards might have been or how people might have been affected or any kind of attempt at maybe compensating people that had...
3: Well, there were a few people independently that were going to try and find environmentalists, um, different lawyers or et cetera, just to put out the feelers to see what kind of things we're dealing with here. Exactly who all was called, I don't I don't know. I know of one notable name that would have been Ed Masry. Ed Masry was the um, attorney in the Aaron Brockovich case, the Aaron Brockovich movie against PG&E when they that company was found guilty of poisoning a water system of a small town. Mm-hmm. And he was the lawyer, one of the lawyers that took on that case.
1: Excuse me. So he, he was contacted, but you don't know if, if he even got the message? I mean...
3: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I, As far as I know, nobody ever heard back.
1: Okay. So he might be inundated with people. The, I would imagine, to...
3: especially after that particular movie, I am sure they were inundated with okay. all kinds of calls. Right. Another one bought another location was told he was because this was found out and he found out that it was another location of Murphy's um, he was told that since he is the documented owner that in order to do anything for on that property for whatever use this person wanted to use it for it was going to have to be cleaned up Mm -hmm. and um, so he called around to get different people to clean it up and they were going to have to take soil samples to figure out what was there that they were dealing with because certain things had had to be cleaned up a certain way. Not long after that, before he even got his results back on what he was going to do, somebody apparently affiliated with the government came and shut him down.
1: By shut down meaning?
3: Literally, he was told, you will never know the results of the samples that were taken. The company you talked to we'll probably come out here and clean it up, but you're better off cutting your losses because whatever you're wanting to do on this property, you're probably not going to be able to do. You're not liable to know whatever was here. It Basically, it's a gag order. You don't need to talk about this to anybody.
1: Do you know if he was given legal papers to, or? That I don't know, that thing. I don't know. Okay.
3: And I think if anything else, it was more of a verbal cease and desist. Mm-hmm
1: do you know of anybody else who've gotten the same yes okay
3: yeah and apparently somebody else saying that they were with some branch of government was also told not to discuss it just basically to leave it alone why i don't really know and these are people around here you know it's hard to shake up a redneck <laughs> am i right yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. i mean these were people it's that like, bring were, it on that were kind of saying you know i don't feel comfortable talking about it on the phone i don't feel comfortable talking about it to somebody face to face and mm-hmm. that's exactly what people were being told. like look i've known you all my life but i'm kind of worried about saying anything because mm-hmm. who knows they probably opened a file up on somebody and then people start sounding like <laughs> conspiracy theorists, crazies or something you know mm-hmm. got the armadillo hat on wrapped in some tinfoil or something right. yeah
1: But i mean i know you say that and, and of course i think uh the powers that be would prefer it, that stereotype to be true, and and there are some people that are, are no doubt are just making up stuff in their basement.
3: Oh, absolutely! But
1: there's been many cases where the government has admitted wrongdoing or covering up something. I mean, uh, look at Tuskegee. Tuskegee, exactly. Um, there was a my own grandmother was experiments were done on her and she never knew it and and died uh, premature of cancer, uh, something from the the 50s in the Cold War. Uh, surely there's a bunch of other cases, uh, you know, where they finally fessed up that you know that they uh you know obviously there was no ill intention it just something they didn't aware of or, or that someone did something wrong or oh by the way we we found out this is causes cancer and that kind of thing and then instead of just uh, fessing up or, or trying to you know remedy the problem as best they could you know there's a cover-up <laughs> And lastly, for the Trying to Herd Cats episodes, I had been recording folks' reaction to the observation by economist Milton Friedman, which was, if you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years there'd be a shortage of sand. Most of the answers I got weren't all that interesting, save for these two. That would be an improvement, so... <laughs> So you're all for this? <laughs> Probably. It reminds me of the uh, walrus and the carpenter. It's uh, seven maids with seven mops swept for half a year. Do you suppose the walrus said that they could get it clear?
3: What is that from? Alice in Wonderland. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Well, uh, it was through the looking glass, I believe. I think they would start, like, seeing mirages and just lose it. Mirages of, like, money and corporate buyouts and <laughs> you know, paperwork. Just Oh, there's a corporation that we can tax. There's a lobbyist group over there. Run, run, run. No, wait. It's just a, just a cactus.
3: <laughs>
2: anything they touch, if you put them in charge of uh, say a housing development or a project or anything like that, it, it's going to be horrible and,
1: and properties around it will be destroyed. So, why do you think that happens? Well, why is it the government seems to kind of mess up everything they do? There has to be a reason. It, you know, it, it's funny to joke about, but it's also kind of tragic. Because most of the
2: people that actually work in the government are really, have, they don't take ownership of anything and responsibility uh, for anything. It's almost impossible to fire anybody in the government. No motive. Right? And so, they may move them to another department and try somebody else for a while, and this and that. The entire sections of cities are blighted completely over probably one thing, really. It started years ago. It was like Section 8 and different things like that. Houses that today, if all these kind of things weren't put into place, houses would be selling for $150,000. I could go pick them up this afternoon. I could probably find three to close on by next week for twenty-five to $30,000. That's what it does to these neighborhoods now what's just happened also again just recently and just happening and i'm not sure if it's about to pass or uh, will pass or what but our president is pushing that every developer develops a neighborhood will have to give properties and set aside certain parts of that land that houses would be able to be built on and low-income people Put in there. Now this doesn't matter if you're building a five million dollar uh, estates or whatever it is. These people are going to find in their estates when they make these purchases possibly being paid for by the government. People living in the next house eventually that are being funded by the government by their own tax dollars. They may look over there one day all of a sudden they see total blight. Now the impact of that enormous. Is this supposed to be a law or regulation? They're passing passing the law. I don't call it a law because it's the law It's what Obama's doing because he has a pen and a phone. Right. Is it executive order or? Executive orders. When the people that want to control have some control over the kind of neighborhood they live in, that's what he wants to destroy. It's called, he calls it equalization or Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not fair policy or all that kind of stuff. People that have enough wealth to Want to sort of insulate themselves from some of the crime and everything else and want to have better neighborhoods. Now, hope it catches on fire enough that people will start to rise up against and tell the congressman and everybody else if they can get off their butts and start really voting mm-hmm. and passing some stuff, it is veto proof Because it's not just a Democrat problem, it's a Republican problem. Everything, right, exactly right. We don't have uh, Republicans that are, their hair and hair's got to be on fire. Yeah. It really does, right. because there's just too many things here that's just going on, and they're sitting back. We're paying them, and we're not getting our money's worth. Right. Well, I'm a, conserv- a, a Republican, but when I say that now, I feel a little dirty when I say it, because so many Republicans that are leaders of our country are not conservative enough to where they're going to take hold of this thing and be out there, and say, no, it's right. not going to happen.
1: I've heard the term used by both leftists and conservative, but they call, I guess they call them republicrats or... I've heard of that. Some, yeah. Stuff I've like that. that. We well, just can't really tell the difference between the two parties. You know, there's 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 having a big party on our, our dime. So what do you say to the person that says, well, you're just being uncompassionate because you just don't want to help those people, the low-income people? I think it's easy for people to talk that way that
2: don't have anything much. They don't own anything. They don't take ownership of properties or businesses or stuff like that. Because it doesn't really matter to you. If things don't go well where you are, you can just uh, walk away, pick your suitcase up, and go someplace else, I guess. But when you invest and own properties, you want the best for that neighborhood. You want the best for the community. You want the best for everybody. everybody it doesn't, doesn't matter race or anything like that, is it? Race has got nothing to do with it. That's it what they'll say, that. though. Oh, yeah. People try to say that. But it's it all comes down to finances and what people are doing with their dollars and how they're either destroying or building up the country in the neighborhoods you know and if somebody is pink and purple polka dot and they're jacking up cars in the neighborhood somewhere that's destroying wealth that's just taking a neighborhood that possibly could be one day go up to values
1: but it's more than just jacking up a car in the front yard oh it's more than that it's like making meth
2: in your kitchen or Well, this one thing comes after another. You first, you might have, not the jacked up car, but you've got something else. There's just certain things that happen when you go, you know there's trouble there. Mm -hmm. There's trouble brewing. You start thinking, we better get out of here because you wait too long. Now, what happens is all the good money runs. It's gonna be left for the people that can't run. Their values go down, 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 because they're stuck.
1: Okay, I think we've salvaged all we can from this virtual sofa. If you'd like to hear some more military stories, you might check out in the corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 21, where we talk with a Kurdish translator who assisted U.S. troops in the Iraq War. And then, episode 57, where we go to the beaches of Normandy to talk with one of the last few survivors of that historic day on June 6, 1944. Or if toxic dumps is your jam, you should swing over to episode 123, where we talk about what went down in the quiet little glowing town of Paducah, Kentucky.
3: In the corner, back by the woodpile, is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Camera Guy. You can send us an email via die at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease.